0: Hello, and welcome to NACLA Radio. I'm Helen Hazelwood-Isaac. First off, a brief update on the investor-state dispute between mining company Pacific Rim and the El Salvadoran government, which I talked about with contributor Manuel Perez Rocha in our last podcast. If you haven't listened to that interview yet, you can check it out at NACLA.org. So, a couple weeks ago, the World Bank's tribunal dismissed Pacific Rim's case against El Salvador after over seven years of deliberation. Although the outcome is good for El Salvador, a lot of people are still pretty upset about how long it took and how much money the government had to spend on legal defense, which they could have used for much-needed social programs. I'll be back with an episode soon to catch up with Manuel and get his thoughts on this. Today, though, we're going to Bolivia. Contributors Brett Gustafson and Nikki Fabricant co-wrote a great article in the Free Trade 2.0 issue of the NACLA report that takes a look at Bolivia's evolving relationship to global trade as President Evo Morales sees out his third and final term as president. If you're not familiar with Morales, he's one of the most popular national leaders in the world and is Bolivia's longest-serving president. Still, his party, which is called La Mas, is often criticized by leftists for failing to follow through on their campaign promises, and he's recently experienced a dip in popularity because of a scandal involving an illegitimate child and allegations that he granted favors to the Chinese company that the mother worked for. Bolivians held a referendum in February to decide if Morales could run again in 2020 for a fourth term as president which he lost very, very narrowly. So now Morales is facing a harsh backlash from mining companies who are resisting government regulations on their industry and efforts to make unionizing easier for workers. In August, Rodolfo Iyanes, the vice minister of the interior, was killed by protesting miners when he was sent by the Morales administration to negotiate with them. His body was dumped on the side of a road. In response, the government clamped down on protests. They imposed new restrictions on where and when demonstrations could take place, and they prohibited the use of dynamite, which was previously a regular feature of protests in the industry. So today, you'll hear me talking to Brett and Nikki about the state of affairs in Bolivia and how evolving attitudes towards Lamas and extractive industries is shaping the political and economic climate there.
1: Um, Brett Gustafson. I'm a professor of anthropology at Washington University at St. Louis. I've been working in and, and studying Bolivia since the early 1990s. And uh, we came to this, uh, the latest piece that that uh, we've written with uh, Nikki was written because we're trying to come up with uh, new ways of thinking about economic transformations in the country in the context of uh positive uh, changes that came with the uh, government of Evo Morales, uh, but also some of the challenges that remain.
2: Okay, so Nikki Fabrican, I'm a professor of anthropology at Towson University. I've been working in Bolivia, I guess, since the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, predominantly in Santa Cruz, and uh, the majority of my work has been with the landless peasant movement, Uh, similar to Brazil's landless peasant movement Uh, in the 2000s when Evo was elected. They uh, were pretty strong in the lowland region, had been seizing lands uh, to push and advocate for a more radical agrarian reform. Um, Brett and I have been talking and thinking about the transformations happening in the country pretty much since our collaborative book, which came out. in 2011, Brett, I think, right? But essentially, you know, this article came out of Conversations thinking about the primary sort of commodities uh, in Bolivia, and we wanted to do a kind of more nuanced analysis looking at the ground, uh, on the ground, rather, at um, social relations, sort of gendered relations, inequalities that exist with these trade relationships.
3: So, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the differences between you know places like Venezuela where Chavez used oil wealth to push through a lot of programs and bolivia and and maybe the differences that you see in the way they're moving forward or, or some of the some of the kind of uh pitfalls that they that they might uh, experience as a result of of these extractivist uh projects
1: well, um I'll start i guess um certainly there are some similarities uh with uh Venezuela and Ecuador uh but there are also some significant differences uh oil is is uh yeah, it's Venezuela's uh primary uh commodity and, and oil is a little bit uh different than uh natural gas uh it's much more volatile and as we see in Venezuela there's uh, much more volatility in in government budgets because of the uh, the, the collapse of, of the oil price uh, whereas uh, with natural gas there are long term contracts and prices established uh with brazil primarily uh that uh, uh don't have that kind of volatility there has been a, a slight reduction uh, uh recently but uh certainly in terms of that distinction we haven't seen problems in in Bolivia that that we see and the economic problems that we see in Venezuela. And as, as Nikki said, uh, we're trying to to look at the issue with a little bit more nuance Uh, in Bolivia. There's sort of a, are you for Evo or against Evo and outside Bolivia, you you see that as well, but you also have a lot of people who are saying we need to move beyond extractivism or or, or stop uh, mining or stop uh, drilling for gas. And, um, that that's sort of too too facile, I, I guess that makes people feel good to say that that, but that's not really a helpful way to think about the actuality of things on the ground. So that's what we're we're trying to start thinking about uh, with this piece.
2: So I think in terms of social programming, there have been significant uh, strides forward in terms of Bolivia. Think about redistributive programming, the bonos, the ways in which uh, the Morales administration, a lot of this is in the article already, and we've been writing about this for a while. Um, so certainly for young mothers, for the elderly, in terms of investments in education and in healthcare, we've seen uh, remarkable sort of advances um, under the Morales administration. Um, in terms of just the contradictions, I think, that Brett, you know, was beginning to talk about at the end of his statement. I just wanted to um, talk a little bit more about soy and the soy industry because I was just recently in, in Bolivia and talking to old Friends, colleagues, comrades from the landless peasant movement, I think uh, when it comes to soy and extractivism, those contradictions are sort of ever more apparent because this is an industry that's not, the revenue is not necessarily being used in a redistributive fashion, right? Much of it is trickling outward towards Uh, folks who are investing in land from Brazil, from Argentina. And it was interesting because the landless peasant movement had a particular ideology about a kind of radical agrarian reform and agroecological projects and small scale farmer, much more along the lines of sort of sustainable, right? Futures. And in the past few years, it's been harder and harder, I think, for the movement to envision any alternative. And actually, when I was there over the summer, a lot of farmers were just talking about how old landless peasant communities have now folded themselves into the vertical soy industry, right? So are on the bottom rung, essentially. So those nuances of the everyday challenges and struggles of land that is completely converted, essentially, into uh soy are very much real in a place like Bolivia today, right? And I think anthropologically and by being on the ground there, we're able to see some of these discrepancies right between a sort of much more radical agenda ideologically but how it plays out on the ground for in this instance farmers right
3: mm-hmm. I, i'm interested in talking uh just about the developments in the mining protests recently particularly regarding Morales's relationship with labor groups um, and how this is how the optics of this are kind of uh affecting that
1: right well, it, 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 there is a, a kind of a connection to the soy question, and 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 that is that Morales's uh, uh, party, the MAS, was elected with significant popular support, and certainly uh, I can speak for myself. Uh, I was uh, certainly supportive of, of the MAS uh, and, and the agenda, the ideological agenda, but uh, in reality, the, the MAS uh, has had to make uh, compromises with different political forces in the country. And as we point out in the article, one of those compromises was with the agrarian elite of Eastern Bolivia, uh, simply because of, of the fact of, of, of maintaining some semblance of hegemony or power. And another compromise that was made was with uh, a group of uh, mining cooperatives, uh, coming back to your question, who in the wake of neoliberal privatization had set up small the word cooperative is used, although, and in some cases, they are uh, like what we might understand cooperatives to be. But in, in other cases, they were uh, like small private businesses. And, and, and I say small in relative terms. That is smaller than a multinational mining firm, but larger than, say, uh, you know, two or three people. Those mining companies or cooperatives sort of were picking up the scraps of what was left from the national mining industry. And over time, many of those cooperatives grew into relatively large companies and were making deals with multinational investors uh, and mining firms. And and for the first period of the Morales government, uh, they were allies of the MAS. And the MAS was actually criticized for not nationalizing those spaces and actually giving concessions to these private firms. So that was the, the context for up until last year. Um, Nikki, I don't know if you want to jump in. Just stop me at any yeah. time. Keep going. Um, so you had a kind of a, a, a contradiction, in fact, where these mining, these small private companies called cooperatives were, uh, receiving benefits from the mass government, uh, without having to follow the same environmental, uh, rules without having to follow the same labor rules and without having to contribute to the national treasury, as one would think in a a nationalized industry. And that was kind of a compromise made uh, by the MAS because they were significant uh, supporters of the government. But uh, with the recent drop in in prices, uh, uh, the government is now trying to push forward with its plan to nationalize In quotes, or take more state control of mining resources. And in order to do that, now they were going to push back against these cooperatives that had been their their strong allies. And this particular conflict arose, it was mistakenly referred to as a strike. It wasn't a strike, it was a protest against a law that was passed that would assert more state control over these cooperatives and, particularly, assert more environmental regulations. And it would give people who worked in the cooperatives, the right to organize in unions. And, of course, those unions would be uh, uh, affiliated with the National Mine Workers Union. And for opponents of the mass that, that would that putatively give more power to the government. These privately run cooperatives uh, did not like this law, and they organized that massive mobilization to resist it with the tragic outcome of uh the death of four minors, uh, it's still not clear whether they were killed by police or perhaps road police, and the death of the Vice Minister uh, Rodolfo Yanis. So, in, in political terms, uh, how, how do we interpret this uh, with uh, some new rules being made about uh, protests? Uh, I mean, this may sound funny to people that, that you're no longer going to be allowed to use dynamite during a, a protest march. You know, whether you think that's a good or bad thing, is yeah. to do. but uh, since miners work with dynamite in their daily lives, uh, they all often bring it to marches uh, just as, as a, as a noisemaker. Although well, in this case, I think it was being, they were using slings to throw it at the police lines. Uh, so it was quite violent. I'll let Nikki jump in and we can talk some more about how do we interpret this you know, in political terms.
2: I mean, I think in terms of the, um You know, mining, Brett, did a really thorough job here. The only thing I would add is like that larger question, right, about regulation, you know, how and in what ways we're seeing sectors, perhaps, that supported Morales begin to really question this government, right? So I, I think that's a larger question to be asking across lots of sectors, right, to what extent this administration has been able to regulate these industries, particularly, you know, as we talk about lithium and other extractive industries. These are key kinds of questions, right, in terms of social, environmental degradation that will be caused uh, by Transnational influence, uh, over some of these industries. So in terms of, uh, soy as well, right? Um, agrarian elites advocate constantly for reducing regulation, uh, when it comes to GMOs, but also in terms of, uh, regulations on export oriented commodities. So there's constantly this tension or pressure, I think, that is very much sort of alive in Bolivia today and creating lots of, of, fractioned groups right the question politically too will be where bolivia will swing in the next few years right uh this is kind of an end of an era here with morales to what extent i don't know the right will resurface in bolivia is an ongoing question
3: Mm -hmm. i mean that's that's a place that, that i naturally uh go to uh, Morales, who has, who lost, was it earlier this year, a referendum mm-hmm. to extend his uh, presidency to another term or, or to mm-hmm. allow him to run for another term. Um, I'm also thinking about, you know, I've, I've, I guess I've framed these questions a lot in the, in terms of the um, support that Morales and his party once had, ebbing, people starting to question the government. But I mean, it also t- could be cast in terms of, of what Brett was talking about, a, a history of uh, you know Moss coming in with a certain agenda and then compromising. Um, yes. You do talk about the um, when Moss rose to power being very supportive of land invasions um, mm-hmm. with these small soy farmers that that you're working with. Land invasions and claims to rightful occupation of unused private lands mm-hmm. were strongly supported by Moss as it rose to power, but are now virtually non-existent. So it's clear that there have been shifts like. Things that maybe before weren't being questioned because they were supported by uh, certain groups within the body politic are now, are now being questioned because a shift has occurred. And I think earlier, yeah, you say the new alliances between Moss and regional and transnational economic elites, transnational economic elite, it comes up again and again in these issues of extractivism and, and mm-hmm. of leftist parties falling short of the promises that they've made. Uh, so Nikki, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Maybe as it mm-hmm. applies to soy, but also just kind of generally how Moss has shifted and how people mm-hmm. are, are, uh, not very happy with that or, or some maybe are.
2: Right. So, I mean, when I was there doing dissertation research, when Eva was first elected and inaugurated, the agrarian elites were really scared across the board. You know, every day there were protests, um, and all sorts of kind of gatherings, right, in the plaza to resist Morales. A lot of that had to do with his a proposal for a much more kind of radical agrarian reform. Um, and a lot of that was uh, supported by social movements, right? Landless peasant movement and other agrarian movements had been critical kind of advisors in his early years to Morales, uh, to the administration. So they were calling for a kind of radical redistribution of lands, uh, oversight regulation, really uh, taking back latifundio lands, right? And there was a whole list, which we probably don't have time to go go into here. But essentially, the idea was that over time, I think Morales realized that he had to make certain, you know, this is back to that compromise, right? Uh, packs with with the elites in order to move forward. So what you're referring to in the article is the fact that Morales has made it kind of illegal essentially to occupy lands and occupying lands was the arm of resistance essentially that peasants used to say uh, to the state, essentially, you need to check this out. There are hundreds of thousands of hectares here that are owned by, you know, one elite uh, family and this is illegal under the constitution. And so it was a way to, to raise essentially um, awareness about land inequities. So now with this new legislation, um, what Morales is essentially doing is calling upon uh, peasants to work with the state, right? So they create kind of a land petition, and uh, state officials will then oversee and try to maintain some sense of whether or not these lands are being held illegally. So I'm um, back to your initial question, which was about uh, social movements essentially. I think to a certain extent what we're seeing in Bolivia today, I mean, this is a sad kind of pessimistic perspective, but I do think, um, that there has been a kind of demobilization of some of these more radical movements by the state trying to work with people like the landless peasant movement. Um, but I, I think actively there is on the ground today in Bolivia, just the reality of, of um, doing, you know, is survival and daily survival much more practical than sustained kind of resistance to moralis. And having alternative visions is, is a lot harder, I think, um, in that sort of daily labor than folding yourselves into an already existing system or structure.
3: Brett, I did want to talk quickly about um, something that I noticed, or, or that I, I kind of understood, as a result of your your explanation of this incident with the um, with the minister, the word cooperatives. I mean, had had me confused um, as I was reading American or, or United States uh, news sources, and and so the word cooperatives and. You know the the insistence that they now comply with labor regulations. these are this is a vocabulary that kind of obscures from mm-hmm. the United States perspective if you're if you're reading mainstream news media in the United States. and it reminds me again of Venezuela. I don't want to draw too many comparisons here, but i have I have limited knowledge to draw on. The protests in Venezuela after Chavez's death and the election of Maduro were framed from the United States mainstream media's perspective as being popular movements, popular uprisings. Um, and this was largely uh, because or were supported by the fact that they were deploying tactics that were associated uh, mm-hmm. with the left. So uh, I wonder, you know, how, how much is this same kind of thing happening here? How much is it just me misunderstanding a single word? What do you see in the way that United States media are, Representing mm. this conflict and, and, you know, where are the discontinuities? Where are there perhaps continuities?
1: Right. Um, well, that came clear to me because uh, uh, a lot of the headlines were reading, uh, striking miners uh, kill a vice minister. Mm-hmm. And that kind of encapsulated, you know, the, the error or sort of the what the US media tries to do, even the so called uh, liberal media, is to, uh, critique and undermine uh, Morales and, and Chavez and, and Correa in Ecuador through more or less subtle ways. So the message being that, look, this so-called leftist president is repressing uh, workers. Now, of course, the miners are workers. This is true. However, uh, the, the, the cooperatives, in there are cooperatives in Bolivia, and there exists a legislation that legislates how cooperatives are to operate. And and cooperatives are to operate in a more kind of a profit-sharing model uh, among the members of the cooperative. Uh, The issue here that became more complicated was that, as I said before, many of these cooperatives had stopped operating like cooperatives and started operating like private companies, in which case they would have to uh, respond to a different kind of legislation. So so in one sense, yes, these, these are working people who, for different reasons, some say they were uh, forced to go out to protest, and, and certainly that that's not the case for all of them. You can't create a, a protest like that uh, by forcing people. Um, so they were working people, and they were confronting the state to protect uh, their interests. But it was certainly much more complicated than simply saying, uh, here is the Morales government uh, repressing for mine workers, uh, as you said, we, we wrote the article uh, a, a week before, and we pointed out this rising conflict in the article, and then it, it went to press, and we weren't able to comment on it. So, um, well, here we are. Here yes. we are. So here we are. And uh, uh, I don't want—I'm not trying to excuse the government for it, it, its actions, uh, but in this particular case. I happen to subscribe to the idea that uh, mining resources should should be under control of, of the state, and uh, to the extent that uh, this is a step to bring more uh, mining profits into the redistributive model of the state, then you tend to have a more favorable view of the government position in this case. Uh, the fact that it it got to the point of violence, uh, there was a lot of finger pointing going on about. Uh, whose fault that was, whether the government instigated this on purpose, whether there were infiltrations of the right wing in the mining movement to instigate the violence, uh, all of which are, are quite possible but very hard to know.
3: so so i I want to turn to lithium um, since we're talking about mining and the uh, kind of move on the on the part of the government or the the interest on the part of the government to expand. The lithium industry in Bolivia. And the, uh, you guys talked briefly about the socio environmental impact of potentially doing this. I wonder, would this not also give the government an opportunity to, to, to kind of, uh, begin with, uh, with a nationalized, uh, industry as far as mining goes, um, and kind of see how that works for them. Um, and then, and then, yeah, the, uh, Remember there being too much about the, the eco left here, which is something that's been obviously significant, um, in Ecuador. So I wonder if there's, if there's much to be said about that as well.
2: Hm in terms of the eco left
3: with lithium and the kind of pushback? Is that what you're... Uh, or, just, or just in general, um, the the, the part, the, yeah. the comment on environmental impact uh, in regards to lithium in the article made me think about just kind of generally. Yes, I
2: think a lot of this is,
3: you know, secondary
2: sources that Brett and I were using. The Democracy Center and Jim Schultz uh, did a really great report kind of questioning... Um, the socio ecological impacts of, um, lithium and proposing sort of you know, challenges for this administration, right? Um, as they begin to open up perhaps this frontier. And I think the big questions were around environmental regulation, uh, to what extent uh, there will be enough government oversight, right? As uh, sort of transnational interests are all vying, essentially, you know, for lithium. There were questions that they raised you know, how this would affect local communities and water supplies certainly is a question that folks, I think, are propose- proposing or putting forward around, um, uh, you know, extraction of lithium. We wrote, you know, a little bit about that, but neither one of us is really on the ground, essentially, yeah. you know, talking to folks um as some of these meetings or discussions are happening. There are some sociologists and anthropologists who are working you know on lithium and would have a kind of more nuance which is just what we're sort of trying to get at in this article but approach to um what those effects might look like right how they might disrupt uh local economies and uh smaller scale you know agriculture
1: yeah i think um you know as we said in the piece uh, the hope uh, and as you said is that uh, the lithium would be, uh, extracted, uh, with as much environmental oversight as possible, and that the resources would be, would contribute to the redistributive project of the state. So that, that, that would be ideal, you know, to say that it, they shouldn't extract or, or, you know, to, to propose it, that there's, um, there's certainly not a significant ecological left in Bolivia that could muster that kind of opposition. And uh, it, it, it's simply, you know, a, a political, you know, non-starter. So, you know, you have to start from the point that, that the lithium will, will be developed. Uh, they've contracted with a German company to uh, build the plant uh, because they don't have the technology or the capital. Right. In an ideal world, uh, Bolivians would uh, build it and run it. And uh, the resources would contribute to pushing forward with alternative energy production. Uh-huh. If if a different government comes in uh, and the, the model changes to a more neoliberal or, or free market uh, model, then we, we we could certainly see a, a more negative outcome.
2: Yeah, and I think that's why nationalization is a a lot of times in the article sort of in quotes, right? Because these tentacles of foreign capital and investment, Bolivia is very much tied into that, right? So to what extent can the state maintain authority control regulation when the majority of the economic interests are coming
3: from elsewhere?
1: You mentioned early on that this uh, question of the the end of the cycle, you know, Mm -hmm. As the progressive era ended, you know, are those of us uh, on the left, are we naive to continue to see any possibility in the governments of uh, uh, Morales, uh, Correa, and Maduro now? And uh, I, I think, I will speak for Ecuador and Venezuela, but I think in, in Bolivia, uh, we still have to recognize that 50% of the country voted uh, to allow Evo to run for election again. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scandal that were brought to light at, on the eve of that vote and the violence that was uh, in all likelihood instigated by the right wing on the eve of that vote may have pushed pushed it in the other direction and uh, there's plenty of corruption in, in the mass government but uh, with that kind of significant popular support I, I think uh, it, it's too premature to say that the, the cycle has ended in in bolivia there have been compromises with the right, with the agrarian elite, with the uh, gas industries and so forth. Uh, but there have been significant transformations that we have to recognize. And there's certainly been a, a kind of a, an absolute upheaval in who has access to voice and power in the country.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: We have to recognize that.
2: Right. I happen to agree with Brett. And I think that the dynamism and the constantly sort of shape-shifting social movement scene is alive and well in a place like Bolivia, right? And it's hard to sort of predict what the next years will entail, but I wouldn't be surprised if, and people even this summer were talking about possible candidates, right, from the social movement scene that might be propelled forward so you know I wouldn't give up hope necessarily on Bolivia I don't want to end in a pessimistic way because I think we both really truly do believe in the power of social movements and have been looking and thinking about and analyzing this for a very long time so it would be premature I think to say that the pendulum will swing rightward in Bolivia
3: since we're since we're looking forward where specifically um, were the two will the two of you be looking? Uh, when, when you're looking to Bolivia to see kind of how how this transition is going to happen, um, obviously you'll be looking at the election when it mm-hmm. when it comes around. But uh, as far as the social movements go, mm-hmm. the the soy farmers, the mining cooperatives, and, and their resistance to these new regulations, um, the agro elites. Uh, mm-hmm. Who will you be looking at? What will you be looking for as we try to kind of Predict uh, as best we can what sort of shift is is about to happen there. Hmm.
1: That's a good question. Is a Any? good question.
2: <laughs> I mean, I can just answer personally. I would still be trying to understand, kind of, both in Highland and Lowland Bolivia, the um, sort of movement perspective, right? I think it's just. Um, one thing to kind of keep your eyes on the mass media in Bolivia, but it's another to actually, if we both can, be on the ground and sort of taking part in some of the meetings and discussions and conflicts, right, um, that will surface in the upcoming months. Certainly, there is a vibrant left intellectual community in Bolivia who will be writing about and thinking about the upcoming elections and, um while NGOs too uh, that supported some of these movements have been to a certain extent demobilized and shifted influence some of them I think there are still some very vibrant kind of bolivian based NGOs that will be writing and and thinking about so I would kind of have a three pronged sort of strategy thinking about on the ground movements some of the NGOs and the left intellectuals that are writing about this
1: right i I, I yeah second that. Um I don't really want to make predictions about uh what might happen uh and who might get elected. It is certainly clear that that no one has the, the, the charisma and popular support of Evo Morales. So in all likelihood we might return to how things used to be, which were presidents who uh were chosen out of agreements between uh different parties. And in that case you would Probably wouldn't see a, a radical change to to the model, but you would certainly see a lot of uh, new hands trying to get a hold of state resources. And that, but uh, I, I think you know on the ground, questions that remain are the ones we point out in the article: is that are the efforts to diversify the economy, to create more employment in urban sectors, and to come up with new models to uh, support small small farmers. Uh-huh. and peasant communities and, and indigenous communities to uh to deal with uh, the pressing issue of urban underemployment and unemployment uh which is expressing itself in uh youth violence uh violence against women sex trafficking in the cities uh all the things that plague all american cities you know can the mass If it remains in power or whatever comes next, are they going to be able to address those contradictions of this economic model that you can't, uh, you can't address those by simply, you know, handing out, uh, uh, benefits and, and, and and credits and so forth. Those are structural problems. So that, that's what, uh, that we'll be looking at and going forward. That was Brett
0: Gustafson and Nikki Fabricant. I'm Helen Hazelwood-Isaac, and this has been NACLA Radio. Check out old podcasts, some previews of the NACLA report, original content, and subscribe at NACLA.org. That's N-A-C-L-A dot org. We're also on Facebook.com slash NACLA, and on Twitter at NACLA. NACLA Radio is produced by me, Laura Weiss is our web editor, and our music is by Radio Jarocho.